Well, good morning, folks. Hey, welcome to Grace. Glad you guys are here. Um, so I ran across some statistics that I'd like to share with you this morning. I don't, I don't know how your memory is, but I find that my memory, uh, it, well, it's never been very good. Uh, but I find that as I get older, my memory tends to get uh, poorer, and I certainly have poor short-term memory. And uh, I ran across some stats to, that was actually encouraging to me, because uh, I found out that I really uh, wasn't the only one who forgets things. So here are just a few interesting stats. According to a study uh, done by Karen Bola from John Hopkins uh, University, uh, she found out that there were several things that people most often forget. So I don't know if you can relate to any of these. I think I can relate to most all of them. So uh, according to the study, according to the people surveyed, um, some 83% of the people surveyed said that they forgot people's names. So if you've ever been there, maybe at church or in a public place, and oh, you see a person and you forget their name, right? Apparently you're not alone. 83% of the people surveyed. Some 60% of the people surveyed indicated uh, that they had forgot or they had placed something. So think keys, right? Lost my keys, can't find them. Some 53% of the people said they struggled to remember words when they needed them, right? So you've been there, you're talking with someone, and What's the word I'm looking for, right? 49% of the people surveyed shared that they quickly forgot what someone else had told them to do. That is, when your wife tells you to take out the trash, conveniently, you just forgot, right? I forgot, you told me to do that. 42% of the people regularly forgot people's faces that they've met before. You ever been there before? Oh, hi, good to meet you. My name's Trey. My name's Joey. I've met you before. Oh, that's embarrassing, right? Been there and done that. Some 38% of the people routinely forgot if they've just done something or not. And a whopping, here's the, here's the culmination, a whopping 100% of the people surveyed said that they forgot all about last week's sermon. Agree with that, 100%? I just made that up, right? That last one I just made up, not 100% of the people right? Uh, but it may feel like that. And so we have been through in our sermon series on love, new, new year, new love. We've done quite a bit. So what I wanted to do before Larry comes to read our scripture for this morning is just get a, uh, give us a bit of a quick review to help us remember where we've been and then where we're going. We're at the tail end of the sermon series heading into the Easter stretch. So we began our sermon series uh, with Jesus, right? We began in John chapter 13, Jesus on love. And we saw what was essentially the foundational teaching of the New Testament in the words of Jesus. He said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So we began with the words of Christ. Then we moved on to discover uh, a little bit about the nature of love. That is, what is love like? Well, we found out, found out several things. We, we discovered that love was sincere, that it was supernatural, that it was obligatory, that it was variable and comprehensive, communal and innate. So what is the very nature of love? From there, we moved on to several weeks in how to love one another, right? What does it look like for us as Christians to love one another in the church? Well, in part one, we examined the love chapter in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13. We found out what love is. It's patient and kind. We found out what love isn't. It's not envious or boastful. It's not proud or dishonoring. It's not self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs, and it does not delight in evil. And of course, we found out what love always does, right? It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes, and it always perseveres. Well, in part two and part three, we went to Romans 13. Remember that? Paul's recipe, Paul's 12 secret ingredients for 
making and creating a loving church, we saw 12 ingredients that we have to have if we're going to be a loving church. They were sincerity, discernment, affection, honor and enthusiasm, patience and generosity, hospitality, goodwill, sympathy, harmony, and humility. And we mix it all together, right? And we get a loving church. Well, in part four, we turn to Romans chapter 14. And we saw, if you recall, how to love well in the gray. That is, how do we love one another in areas that are biblically gray from Romans 14? Last week, in part five, we saw tough love, right? We saw Paul giving the the church in Corinth some tough love in 2 Corinthians 1 and 2. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit as we kind of head into the home stretch of this sermon series. And we are going to transition from how to love one another in the church to the results of love. That is, what happens in the church? What will happen in this church if we pursue doing and becoming all of the things that I just mentioned, right? What will be the result? What will be the outcome? Well, we'll find out four things, two today and two next Sunday. What happens when we love well in the local church? We'll find out shortly, but Larry, I've asked to come and to read our scripture uh, from, uh, from today, for today, and then he'll lead us in prayer. Thanks, Larry. So we're in Romans 13, Colossians 2, and Colossians 3, so I'm jumping around a lot. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Colossians 2, 1 through 3. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then Colossians three twelve through 14. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for your scripture this morning. Uh, Pray that we might take to heart the many of the things that we've been taught on loving one another, forgiving one another, and help us to, to have that kind of heart, Lord. Teach us where we're failing in that. Help us to be better at it, Lord. Let us not be of any harm to any of our neighbors, but let us reach out to them in love and forbearance and lifting them up and showing them the same kind of grace that you show us. Help our church to be one of grace where we show grace towards each other, uh, accepting our differences and working through when we have those differences 
in love that your perfectness and your mystery of Christ really shones through more than anything else, that in everything we do, Christ might have the preeminence. In thy name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Larry. Well, I heard a story this week of a man who uh, lived in a rural town, much like ours, and uh, he was both the local uh, veterinarian of the town, and uh, he was also the local taxidermist. Yes, veterinarian and taxidermist. Because of this kind of odd combination, he had a sign over his door, and it read this way, either way, you get your dog back. Get it? Either way, you get your dog back. You know, that guy... He can guarantee results, right? He can guarantee results in his business. You know, friends, God cares about results. God cares about results. Today we're going to switch gears from how to love in the church to the results of love in the church, discovering two of really the first four, uh, I think, uh, things, results that happens in the local church when we love one another. The first is that we fulfill the law. And the second is that we become a united and unified church. Two things that happen when we love one another. First, we fulfill the law. And second, we become a unified church. Let's take a look at the first from Romans chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible like mine, it's on page 920. There in Romans chapter 13, we're going to take a look uh, just at a few verses, verses 8 through 10. We've actually looked at these verses before, uh, in particular focusing in on the first half of this verse. If you recall, uh, the first half of verse 8 we treated earlier in the series, and there we saw that love is obligatory. It is an obligation. Paul calls it a debt. It is a debt that we owe other Christians, that we love one another. Now I'd like to focus in on the second half of verse 8, running in to verse 9 and verse 10. As we focus in on the latter half of verse 8, we see the reason why. We see the reason why love is called an obligation, why love is a debt. And it's simply because when we love one another, Paul says, we fulfill the law. Let's read verse 8 together. Let no debt, he says, remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For, here's the explanation, right? For whomever loves others has fulfilled the law. Paul says that we have a debt, and our continuing debt to one another as brothers and sisters is that we love one another, right? Nothing to no one, but, but to our brothers and sisters. And here's the reason why. He can say that love is a debt because when we love one another, when we pursue loving one another, he makes this statement that we go about fulfilling the law. And so the question that pops into my mind, hopefully it pops into your mind, is what does he mean by that? In what way does love fulfill the law? What law is he talking about, right? Well, he, he offers some explanation in verses 9 and 10. Let's read it together. First of all, verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, he says, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment 
of the law. So Paul has explained to us how loving one another in the local church fulfills God's law. Well, what law is he talking about? Well, we get a clue in verse 9, right? Take a, take a look at, at verse 9. What, is, what does he quote here? He quotes four commandments, and not just any commandments. He, he quotes four of the ten commandments that most of us are familiar with from Exodus chapter 20. Specifically, he quotes number six, number seven, he skips number, uh, he does number eight, he skips number nine for some reason, and then he, he quotes number ten. He's quoting four of the ten uh, commandments, right? And all of them, significantly, are from the latter half of the Decalogue, the, the, the Ten Commandments. Why is that? The first half of the Ten Commandments, roughly, is about how we are to relate to God. The last half, roughly, of the Ten Commandments is how we are to relate to one another. So Paul says, listen, I'm going to explain to you how love fulfills the law, how it fulfills God's commandments on how we are to treat one another, right? Certainly, these ten com- these commandments that he quotes were part of the law, and he says when we love each other, we actually are fulfilling them. Notice he adds a significant comment there at the tail end of verse nine. He adds after quoting these four commandments, right? Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet, and then notice this important addition. And whatever other command there may be. Did you catch that? Whatever other command there may be, he says, is summed up in this one command. So what Paul is doing is this. He's saying these four commandments, right, are, um, are typological. They represent, they're representative. They represent all of the commandments that we get in the Bible on how we are to treat one another. And he says that all of them are fulfilled That is, if we obey them, we keep them by Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, Jesus quotes this. He says it's the second greatest commandment. So here's the logic. It's it's fairly simple. Think about it, right? If you are trying to love your neighbor, as Leviticus 19 teaches, if we pursue loving each other in the church, right, then are we going to, um, are we going to, to, to harm our neighbor, right? Are we going to hurt them, right? If we're seeking to love our neighbor, will we commit adultery with his or her, with his wife? Of course we won't, right? If we love our neighbor, we won't murder them, will we? Of, of course not, right? If we are trying to love our, our neighbor, we're not going to steal their car, we're not going to covet their house, right? Of, of course not. And that's what Paul means. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, Love is the fulfillment of the law. Of course, to love someone and then to do harm to them are polar opposites. And that's how he says love is a fulfillment of the law. When we love one another, it keeps us from doing something that will hurt one another. And then by default, by, by definition, we, we love them, right? And so Paul says, listen, when we as Christians in the local church go about doing what is best for each other, we, we pursue love, then we will keep all of the commandments that God is giving us about how we are to relate to one another. I think what Paul is doing here is he's, he's giving us an approach. He's giving us a mindset as to how to go about pursuing God's commandments on how we are to love one another. I don't know if it struck you, but as I was putting together this little summary, right, this little review of everything that we've seen in the New Testament about how we are to love one another, to me, it was overwhelming. 
Uh, it was quite a bit. It was a lot more than what I remember preaching through over the past weeks. It was a lot. There's a lot on what we're supposed to do to one another. There's a lot on what we're supposed to not do to one another. There's a lot that God tells us about how we are, what we're supposed to be to one another, and the attitudes and characteristics that we are to have and that we aren't to have. And so Paul says all of the things that God tells us in the scriptures about what we are to be, how we're to love one another, if we simply pursue loving, doing that which is best for our brother or our sister, then we will fulfill all of the other things. So Paul, I think, is giving us a mindset, right? How, what are we supposed to do with this, this list of commands and rules and characteristics and traits that he's given us? I think he gives us a hint, and here's the hint. We shouldn't try to love one another by focusing on the list, by focusing on the list, but rather by focusing on the love. Not focusing on the list per se, but focusing on the love. Because Paul says here, when we put love for our brother or sister first, we actually end up fulfilling the list. So we should ask ourselves, ourselves, first and foremost, in any situation, in any relationship that we have with other Christians, what does it look like for me to love them well? How can I do what is in their best interest? And I think when we have that mindset and that approach in our relationships, we will fulfill God's commands to us. I ran across a story, and I'd like to read it to you because I think it, I think it really illustrates uh, what Paul is teaching here, that when we love one another, we fulfill the law. The story is told uh, of, of a married woman and a married man, and uh, their marriage was not very healthy. It was uh, not a very healthy relationship. In fact, uh, the husband in the relationship was very demanding, very demanding of his wife, so much so Uh, that he was kind of OCD. He prepared for her a list of rules, a list of regulations for his wife to follow. As the story goes, he insisted that she read them uh, once a day to remind herself of the rules as to how she was to relate to, to him. Among other things on his list of quote, do's and don'ts were things like uh, when she was to wake up in the morning and what his breakfast was supposed to be like and how certain rule, uh, housework in the, in the home was supposed to be done. Ladies, it sounds like a winner, right? Not so much. Not what every little girl dreams of. Well, after several long and and very difficult uh, years of marriage, uh, her husband passed away. And as time went on, the woman uh, met another godly man and fell in love, and they uh, were happily married. Well, uh, sometime later, uh, she was doing some cleaning. She was doing some housework around the house. And she found, tucked away in a drawer the list of commandments and rules that her first husband had, had drawn up for her. And she pulled it out and opened it, and she knew what it was. And as she began to look over the, the rules of do's and don'ts, it, it dawned on her. It kind of struck her. The light bulb went off in her head, so to speak, that even though her current husband, whom she loved and who loved her very well, had never given her any kind of list or to-do uh, to do rules, right, that she naturally, was doing everything that her first husband's list required. And why was that? It was because she loved him so. Because she loved him. And in this way, you could say that her love for her current husband fulfilled the law of her former. I think that's what Paul means here. When, when love motivates our actions towards our fellow Christians, then in a sense, our, too, our love too is the fulfillment of the law, focusing not on the list, but focusing on the love. 
and then the list will naturally take care of itself. So what happens in the church when we love one another? Well, we fulfill the law, but that's not only it. Secondly, we, we are unified. If you have your Bibles, now let's turn a few pages over to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. So you make your way through the Corinthians, you got Galatians, Ephesians, and then you find this little letter of uh, Colossians after Philippians. Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2 and in Colossians chapter 3, I think we see a second result, a second thing that happens in the life of a church when we love one another, and that is love creates unity. When we love one another, our hearts will be naturally formed and bonded together in love. Let's check out Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Again, this is the second result. Uh, We see it in two places. Here, Paul is writing to uh, the church in the city of Colossae. And just a little bit of a background to help us understand these verses. Paul writes this letter to a church that was under attack. This church was under siege, not from armies, but from uh, false teaching, from heretics that were threatening the church, uh, both in Colossae and in this particular region. And so Paul writes this letter to the church to combat this particular heresy. We don't know exactly what it was, but when we read through the letter of Colossians, we get a good idea. We kind of deduce what some of the uh, content of the heresy was. We find out that uh, this particular heresy was lessening the person of Christ. It was making not more of, but less of the person of Jesus. It was mixed with philosophy. It was mixed with ritualism. Uh, it, was, it had an emphasis on, on having a higher or enlightened knowledge. And it's in this background, right, this heretical background that Paul then writes these words, In Colossians chapter 2. Let's read them together. Verses 1 through 4. He says, I want want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. We'll return there in a second. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So there's quite a, quite a bit here, right? He says that he's laboring for them, that he works for them, right? And what is he laboring towards, right? Well, we see it there in verse 2. He says, my goal of my labor is that you might, number one, that you might be encouraged, right? He says, I want you to be encouraged in heart. And the number two, and this is where we're going to focus our efforts, he says, secondly, not only that you may be encouraged, but you may be united, right? So that you may be united. And what is the agent of unity here, right? Notice, united in love, right? Love is the agent of this church's, and every church's, unity. He says, I work hard for you to be encouraged in your heart and united by love so that you can know Christ richly and deeply in everything that he is. So let's focus on this little phrase in verse 2, right? Look again at verse 2. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart, And then my translation here, the NIV says, united in love. His goal is that this church and all churches be united in love. This is kind of a a loose translation of the Greek word, sumbambizo, 
fun word, sumbambizo. It, it has a, a range of meanings, but it most often means this, to bring things together or to unite things together. To bring, to bring things together or to unite. I was, uh, I was re- reminded of, of a t-shirt that I saw in college that I, um, that I, 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 I really enjoyed because I so related uh, to it. Uh, I don't know about you, but something I particularly struggle with is spelling. I can type really well, uh, but I can't spell very well. So I'm very happy about spell check, right? That's a good thing. And uh, I saw this t-shirt. And the t-shirt simply uh, read this way, bad spellers of the world, untie. Get it? Untie, unite, right, because they're bad spellers, they spelled it wrong. Um, You know, love here doesn't untie, it does quite the opposite, right? Paul says love unites us, right? It is a, it is a uniting agent. I think a common and an accurate and an illustrative interpret, uh, translation is actually what the, the New American Standard says. The New American Standard translates this little phrase, united in love, this Greek word, sumbambizo, as this. Having been, that is speaking of their hearts, with their hearts, having been knit together. Having been knit together in love. This idea of knitting things together, I think, is a really helpful way to translate this. I think knitting, or to knit something together, is a perfect illustration of what happens in a church when we love one another. Because, and I don't know much about knitting, but I think, basically, when a person uh, knits something, you take several different strands of yarn, right? Individual strands of yarn, and, and, and you work them together. You unite them with needles in the hands of a skilled knitter, right? And what is the result? Well, the result is that you have one united piece of cloth. So I wanted to show this off. Uh, I don't think Jane minds, but uh, Jane Berger, at the birth of our latest child, created for us this lovely knit-together uh, blanket. And it's nice and warm, and it's, and it's beautiful, right? Uh, this united kind of piece of cloth is what Paul is talking about. He says, I want the local church, though individual strands of yarn, to be united together. And how shall we be united together? We are united together in love, right? When we love one another, God unites our hearts together, right? God, as the master knitter, takes individual Christians, individual strands in the church, works them together through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each born-again believer. And the result then is what? A unified body. Well, we see it not only in chapter 2, but we see it in chapter 3. So look ahead just a little bit in chapter 3. We have a very similar idea in chapter 3, starting in verse 12. There, starting in verse 12 and running through verse 14, we, have, uh, we see yet again that unity is the result of love in the church. Um, as we make our way into chapter 3, just a bit of a context, Paul, uh, as, as usual, uh, what he does uh, is, is he transitions all, almost all of his letters from doctrine to duty. So he talks about doctrine, and then he says this is how you're to respond, from principles to practice, if you will. And here in chapter 3 is a hinged chapter in the book of Colossians. We get the doctrine of Colossians in chapters 1 and 2, and then we get the practice of the doctrine in chapters 3 and 4. And so starting in chapter 3, Paul uh, says in verses 1 through 4, he says, listen, now that you have become a Christian, set your mind on 
things above. He says that is adopt a new way of thinking as a Christian, stemming from your new identity as a Christian. Verse, verses 1 through 4, right? So put on this new mindset. You're a new person. You're, you're, you are united with Christ, he says. And so put your, set your mind on things that are above, verses 1 through 4. Well, how do we do that? What does that look like in the life of a Christian? Well, he tells us in verses 5 through 11 first, and he says, first of all, what we need to do is we need to put off, we need to kind of take off or put away some of the old habits before we became Christians that's not compatible with who we are now as followers of Christ. He uses language of of clothing. He uses language of putting off and taking on is kind of the image that he uses. A kind of, he gives us a laundry list, so to speak, of, of, of things that we're supposed to, to take off. And then starting in verse 12, which is where we're going to start, he says not only should we take off some of these pieces of clothing, but there are new attitudes, new practices that you should put on as a Christian. And he begins that in, in, in verse 12 and running all the way through chapter se- uh, verse 17. So let's take a look here. What are the new actions and attitudes, these pieces of clothing, that we are supposed to put on. Verse 12. Therefore, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself. Notice the image, right? Clothe yourself. Put these on. Clothe yourself. And he's going to give us a list of seven things here. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with each other, and forgiving one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So here in verses 12 through 17, we get essentially seven pieces of clothing that as Christians, we are to work to put on, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. I liken it to putting on a brand new seven-piece suit. I think about the only time I've ever worn a seven-piece suit is for prom or something like that. But I kind of I kind of think of it like this guy. You may be familiar uh, with this guy here, James Bond, right? Uh, the newest James Bond, that is. And here he is uh, kind of sporting a classic a look, a seven-piece suit, right? Seven pieces to this outfit that James Bond has on. We can move on from James Bond. Paul says there are seven things that we are to put on, right? And we've just discussed those, and we'll talk about them a little bit more in a second. But that's not all. There's not only seven pieces of clothing that we are to put on as Christians, but there is one more article of clothing. Notice what he says in verse 14. And over all these virtues, right? Over all of these virtues, put on what? Love. Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So Paul says, listen, there are seven garments that you're supposed to put on as a Christian, right? And and he's he's given us those seven garments, but he says that's not all, right? If you want to tie the outfit all together, if you want to unite each of those seven seven things into one uh, one whole, he, he says you can put an overcoat over the outfit, if you will, like the one James Bond is wearing here. There's James Bond. Here he comes, hopefully. There he is, not only in a seven-piece suit, but what does he have over it? He's got a nice, classic black overcoat. And with that overcoat, he ties all of his outfit together. We can move on from James Bond. This is what Paul is saying, right? Paul is saying, put on the overcoat of love. And when you put on the overcoat of love, what happens with these other seven? He says, all of these are unified. You could, you could, put, it, you could put it this way, right? 
You could say that compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness are only at full force in the life of a church when they are united by and empowered through the love that we have for one another, right? So it sounds very similar to what we've seen before in chapter 13, right? So this little phrase, this little phrase that we get in verse 14, and over all of these virtues put on love, which, according to the NIV, binds them together in perfect unity. I I really like, again, the New American Standard. It says this, Beyond all of these things, put on love. And what happens when we put on love over all of these seven things? Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That is, it unites us together. So practically speaking, as we wrap up here, how, how shall we do this? What does this look like in our church? Well, what it means practically is that the unity of our church will ebb and flow, decline and grow with our love for one another. So if we are experiencing at any point disunity in the church, most likely it's because there's a lack of love somewhere. And the opposite of true is true. If we are experiencing uni- unity in the church, it means that practically we are loving one another. And so friends, do you want God to knit our hearts together like, like these strands of uh, yarn were knit together as a unified whole here at Grace? I do, and I hope you do too. And to do that, we have to love one another. We have to put on our seven-piece suit and then put on our overcoat of love. And so let's think about this seven-piece suit that we are to be putting on. Are we putting on these seven garments, if you will, these seven garments of love? Are we putting on, first of all, compassion? Paul says we put on compassion, right? Are we being sensitive to those who are suffering in the church or those who are in need? Or are we simply consumed with our own life, with our own problems? He says put on compassion. Second, we're to put on kindness, right? That is, we should be courteous to one another. We should be thoughtful with one another in our conversations. Or are we simply rude? to one another? Are we simply standoffish, right? Or is our mind consumed with thoughts of ourself? We should be kind. He says we should put on humility, right? As we relate to one another. Are we putting on the garment of humility or are we in pride simply thinking too highly and too much about our own self, sticking up our nose at the blood-bought brothers and sisters here at Grace? Friends, let's put on humility. Not only that, let's put on gentleness, What does it mean to put on gentleness? It simply means that we are considerate. It means we are considerate of other people, right? We should be considerate of them. Or are we self-assertive? We have to have our own way. We push for our own rights and for our own preferences. Paul says, put on gentleness. Not only that, he says, put on patience. This one is so important in preserving the unity of the church. Put on patience. To be patient with one another simply means that we exercise long-standing self-restraint. Long-standing, over time, we have self-restraint with others. It means we're not quick-tempered. It means we're not demanding, right? We are patient. Not only that, but Paul says, forbear with one another. Put on forbearance. This simply means we put up with the discomforts of people's personalities, people's faults, people's foibles, people's failures at the church. We just, we put up with it, even though it causes us discomfort. Or are we quick to dismiss someone and to dissolve a relationship because we simply don't want to put up with them? Paul says, 
put up with people in the church, right? Even if they drive you crazy. Finally, forgiveness. Forgiveness, right? This is huge. We can't hold grudges. We can't hold grievances with those who may have hurt us, right? He says, forgive one another. Forgive one another. Don't hold back that which God has so freely offered to you in Jesus Christ. And he says, above all of these things, right? Tie them together. Unify them, right? Unite the strands of these seven things together. Put the overcoat of love on and we will be a united church. In closing, with all of the talk about love that we've had over the past weeks and even months, I don't want anyone to get the impression that we can just uh, love out of our own resources, right? The foundation for my love for you and your love for one another is always, it must always be our experience of God's love, right? Our experience of God's love through personal faith in Jesus. Friends, if we try to love one another without being Christians, without ever having experienced the love of God poured out into our hearts through the Spirit, if we try to just kind of gather it up in our souls to love one another, you know what we're doing? We're trying to give people water out of a dried up well. Like there are no resources there until we come to personal faith in Jesus. First John 4.19 tells us this. It simply says, we love because what? He first loved us, right? We love each other. We have the resources and the ability to love each other because he first loved us. It's only after we come to God, it's only after we come to the foot of the cross as guilty sinners, receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness through faith in Jesus that we then have the capability, have the capacity to love one another as we should, right? And so friends, I want to close with this. Are you trying to give people water out of a dried up well? You're trying to give people Love when you have no capacity to love because you haven't experienced the overwhelming love of God through faith in Jesus. If that's the case, then we're going to pray right now and I'm going to release you to lunch. But if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you're just trying to to, to do this on your own, you can't do it. You have to have the, the wellspring of God's love in your heart and in your life. You can pray with me now and you can place your faith in Jesus and you can become a Christian. And you can have new brothers and sisters and you can begin to love them with this new wellspring of love and life through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray for a man or a woman or boy or a girl that is here and they feel that way. They resonate with these commandments to love each other and they feel like all there is is selfishness in their hearts and they have no capacity to love in these ways. It's because they've not experienced your great love for them through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, you have shown us in your scripture that you demonstrated your own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, undeserving of grace and mercy, you sent Jesus to die for us. And so if there is someone here and they've never received this kind of love, may they now pray this prayer with me to accept Christ in their heart. Praying this way, Father, we We know that we can't love on our own. We know that we are separated from you, that that we're sinners, that we have no right into heaven, and we recognize that we, because of our sin, have uh, earned the income of wrath and hell and that we deserve eternal punishment. But through your great love and kindness to us, you have sent your son, your only son, your perfect son, to live 
the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve, and to rise again victoriously to offer us forgiveness of sins. And so we trust in that and in that alone, in what Christ has done, living perfectly for me and dying in my place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Father, if there's a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they've never trusted in Christ, may they, have, may they do it, may they just have done it right now. And may you fill them with your spirit and with your great love so that they can begin then to love other people in the way that you've called us to. Father, for those of us who have, we know that we are Christians and we've placed our faith in you. May we return again to that great love that you've demonstrated to us, uh, tapping into the resource of love that you've given us. And Father, as we do that, may we fulfill the law and may we become a united church according to your grace, for your glory, and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Guys,